If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like for you to open to the Gospel of John and verse 19. We looked at that last week, that same verse. And it says this, If you were of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I promise you this before we get into this subject very far. One thing that you are naturally geared to avoid in this world is being hated, being rejected, or being despised. That is one thing that most people in the world will do whatever they have to do to keep that experience from coming into their life. I don't think anybody ever enjoys being hated. I don't think anybody has ever enjoyed and found pleasure in being rejected. But one thing is certain and true. Jesus said, because he made a choice of you to be his disciples, the coming forth of that discipleship is a growth. But as you begin to emerge from somebody who was worldly to somebody who is becoming spiritual, the world, he said, will hate you. There will be a certain kind of disgust that the world has with you and your narrow ways and your narrow views and your elitist Christian or spiritual life. You people think you're just better than everybody. And they say things like that because that's how the world, or that's how a lot of people reject you. And it's amazing how many people cower to that kind of pressure and begin to tell why they're not so dedicated or why they're not so committed. Well, I think Christianity is good, but you know, no, I'm not like that. And they begin to back off and water down everything they thought a Christian should stand for so that the world out there will stop hating them and will accept them. And Jesus said, when the world begins to accept you, you're not of God. Because if you're a friend of the world, remember James 4, 4, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And that's the way it works. These choices are not easy. As somebody once said, they're hard choices. But when you make the right choice, you'll find being yoked with Jesus is easy because of the change that he makes in your heart and how he gives you everything it takes to not be affected and moved by what people in the world say. Most Christians, I'm afraid, are conformed to the world. They really don't want to let go of it. They really don't want to change all that much. They want to go to heaven. They want all the applause of the angels and the acceptance of God. They just don't want to give up all their hopes and dreams which are formed by this world. Now our message is enemies of Christian love. And I said last week in the beginning that you have to have a definition of what you mean by Christian love because people say Christian love is just being happy and friendly or going to church. But it's more than that. Christian love is something that happens, first of all, because God loved you. God loved and loves you, which causes you, in turn, to love Him. We love Him, First John 2 says, we love Him because... He first loved us. How could you love him if he did not first love you? In other words, our love for God 
is a response to God's love for us. How many people have experienced that? I don't know. It's their call. But I know this. When a man loves the Lord, it's because he is aware that God loves him. And the effect that has on him is a lifelong effect. You live loving the Lord. Secondly, it means by that you're committed your ways and your will to God. You surrender yourself to God in such a way that I want you to teach me thy ways, O Lord, so that I can walk in thy truth. I want you to unite my heart to fear your name. I want to praise you and honor you all the days of my life. And you might have to admit sometimes, boy, there's a lot of interference, though. There's so many things that pull me in another direction. But I want you to make me strong so that I'm not overcome by these things. Jesus said, if a man loves me, he'll keep my word. Not about some things, but about everything God shows him. God's revelation comes to you not to make you happy or excited, but to show you the way to his blessing, to his grace, his favor. The third thing I said about Christian love last week is that God's love in you does a perfecting work in you. It is perfected. It brings you to the place that God wants you to come to. Perfected doesn't mean you're flawless and without any sins or anything in your life, but perfection means that God completes his work in you. He does it through love. You love your neighbor as yourself because that's the way God loves your neighbor. And he simply uses you to love other people. And how hard that is and how often we want to fight back and get even, hold a grudge, gossip, complain, murmur, backbite, whatever we have to do because we want to vent our feelings. It's the very opposite of loving God and letting God love through you. So the enemies of Christian love are basically and simply the world, the world itself. But the world's what we looked at last time, and the world is all about things that control you. When Jesus called us out of the world, it meant we were in the world. And in the world, and even when he saved us, he said he didn't take us out of the world, he left us in the world. But he also said we are in the world, but not of the world. We used to be because he said he chose us out of the world. Our life was conformed to the image the world wanted us to be conformed to. We did what everybody else did. We don't want to be different because in the world, it's a unity thing. It's the herd instinct. We're a part of the bigger whole. And whatever the bigger whole does, whatever shift it makes, whatever direction it changes, we go with it or we are criticized by it. So our lives were really conformed to this world and we were just more like the world. And we found that when God saved us and we came to him, very worldly creatures, very worldly minded, very worldly acclimated and geared. I mean, we were so settled in what we're going to do with our life in this world and God saved us. And when he saved us, hopefully... He puts you somewhere he can teach you. Because the church is a teaching center. A preacher may declare the truth. It's a teacher who explains what it means. 
And that's the way conviction comes, which results in repentance from your opposition to it and so forth. So teaching is why we're here, for God to anoint us to understand what he wants and what he meant by what he said so that I have a chance to take a step closer to God and surrender more fully to him. It's a daily walk. And boy, we found that when we came to the Lord, we were so easily offended at the Bible or at the truth of the Word. Oh, we get ticked off so easy. I mean, we're just offended by so much of the truth. Now, I asked you last week, why are we so easily offended? Why does the truth about non-Christian holidays, why does that offend us? Why did the idea that there really is not a Santa Claus, why did that just anger people and make them fold their arms and not want to hear any more of this? Why? Why is it that when you teach there are, in the Christian church, in the New Testament, there are no holy days? None. Zero. The closest thing you get to something we ought to do is communion. And you show forth the Lord's death until He comes, as often as you do it. And there's nothing else. That's it. Why are we so offended at all of these warm days that we call holidays and the gifts, maybe? Why are we so offended when we hear that we shouldn't do that and this church doesn't do that? Don't you all believe in God? People say. You don't celebrate Christmas? No. (laughs) Aren't you Christian? See, the world doesn't know any better. They've never been taught. They've simply gotten in the flow of the way the world has trained the church, brought the church in conformity to the acceptance of the world, And most every church in the world is geared to the place it is socially accepted. It's admired for its good qualities and good traits and its inherent goodness that it contributes to society. And it goes along with everything that society approves of. It's called psychology in much of the training in seminaries today. You know, you don't want to rock the boat. You want to make the people happy. If you make them happy, they'll come back. If they're happy, they will give. You want to make them comfortable. If they're comfortable, they will like you and they will follow you. But just don't rock the boat and leave sensitive subjects like sin alone. They tell me the biggest church in America leaves that word alone. Because we're not here to, you know, to agitate the people. We're here to just encourage people to live a good life. Well, why are people like that? Why does the idea that we don't get involved in politics, we don't try to run the world, the world is not our place to run. God did not give Christians to run the governments of the world in any dimension. Then why do we want to do it? And why are you with your aspirations so offended when the truth comes out that you shouldn't do that? Vote for what? Who? Which heathen do you vote for? What corrupted government do you support with your time and energy and argue with your Christian brother about it and then you all draw apart? What party? Oh, we get offended. Talk about money and about debt. You know, some people come to church once a year and that's the one day of the year we talk about Christian giving. I knew it, I knew it. They're talking about all they want money. Money, 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 money. Why are you so offended at the truth about money? 
Why does money offend you? You've got it in your pocket. It doesn't make you mad when it's in your pocket. Why are you so angry about God's attitude towards it or about debt? Why does debt bother you? Do you believe that God could supply all of your needs? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And then here comes some excuse that was never Christian. Where did that come from? These are some of the questions I asked you last week. Why is it that we are so easily offended at the truth? Well, the answer that I gave, and it's true, is because of the world. Why is it that you sit in a Christian service for one hour and you're just completely wearied, worn out, and not even sure you can make it home? And you can watch a movie for two hours and enjoy every second of it. How is it that you like to go to church, but if your child has a ball game or some kind of a sporting event somewhere and it happens to be on a Sunday, you won't be here. You won't. Because your child's activities are more important than, well, you can always go to church. <laughs> Where'd you get that? Did Jesus teach us that? I don't get offended yet. I, you will in a minute, but not yet, okay? Did Jesus teach us that? Then why are we like that? Why do we as Christians come to church with these preconceived ideas of what's right and wrong and don't mess with it? Find a subject that doesn't mess with my life's decisions and the pursuit of my dreams. Talk about something else. Don't talk about that. Why do we do that? Why are we like that? Is it not the world? Is it not the educational system, the way you were grown up, the people you grew up with? Is it not the entertainment you see on all the media, the magazine articles or those crazy books that you read about, romantic things? Is it not all of these things together that have formed in you the way it really ought to be? And people dress the way you think. Is the right way? This is the way you do it? Do they not mold you into their image? The word conforming, the Bible, is the word schematazo. We get it, the word schematic from it. And a schematic is when you, the builder, the contractor, lays his schematic down, and this is the way you build the building. You follow the drawing and all the little angles and the details, and he builds it according to the schematic drawing. That's what the world does. You come into this world, now, there's some things you don't do. There's some things you ought to do. You don't want to do that. You're molded into its image. And you come to church, and you're so easily offended and almost impossible 60% of the time to pastor because you're so difficult. But why are you difficult? Now, I'm not saying you are. I'm talking about other people. Why are you difficult? Why do we have so many church splits and breakups and people fighting and fussing for centuries? Because of the world. Turn to First John 5. 1 John 5 and verse 3. It's the world. Now, at the end of 1 John chapter 5, in verse 3, right at the very end of it, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. You all agree to that? Will you agree to this statement? If you love God, you will keep His commandments. Will you also agree that if you don't keep His commandments, you don't love God? See, that one was not as good as the first one. Amen, brother. But don't make it personal. Well, but it's the truth. And what about his commandments? How many people say, man, that's a hard word. Why is it hard? 
Man, that's who he was whooping on us this morning. Well, not everybody in there took it that way. Some people said, praise God. Yeah, I need that. Well, other people said, well, I can't believe he knew I was coming. It's a personal attack. Don't you know I'm attacking? This is pit bull morning. People think you're attacking them. Why? Because of the world. It's the way you're molded. It's the way you think. It's the way you function. You function like that. The world owes you something. You're a victim. It's not right. It's not fair. I don't have It's the world. It's the world that makes us like that because everything God does changes us into a joyful, contented person. And if there's not peace and joy and contentment, then you got the world. It's either God or the devil. It's one or the other. That's how polluted we were. Remember, pure religion and undefiled is this, to visit the widows and the fatherless in their affliction and to keep yourself unspotted from the world in James 1.27. To keep yourself unspotted. Brother Mike, a couple weeks ago, was talking about not being entangled in the world. A good soldier, you can't war the good war. You can't fight the good fight of faith if the world is hindering you and suppressing you and making you afraid to say things. You got to crucify it. You got to overcome it. The end of verse 3, God said his words are, are not what? Grievous. Grievous. They're not a heavy burden and a weight that are designed to suppress you and keep you from having joy because I got to do all these things. It's not like that. That attitude of, oh, this is so hard. That's the world's attitude. That's what the world does to you. That's what it's doing to your children. People aren't happy today. Church folks aren't happy. Nothing is happening to make them happy. Or if they do have something good happen, they're quickly offset by something else. But Christians... We're happy because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We have joy because of the presence of Jesus. Well, you can amen. And it's true. But do you live like that, see? What's the fourth verse say? What does the fourth verse of 1 John 5 begin with? Overcoming. Overcoming. For whatsoever is born of God does what? It doesn't look at the word as a grievous obstacle to their peace and joy and freedoms and successful ventures in this world. It doesn't do that. God isn't our adversary. God isn't against us. But if he doesn't change us, if he doesn't cleanse us, and if you don't allow the change and the cleansing to take place, he has to judge you. He doesn't want to judge you. He's long-suffering, tolerant. But there comes a day if, if we don't, well, overcome. What's he going to do? He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Overcome what? Everything the world throws at you to keep you from being what God wants you to be. You've got to overcome it. The power of darkness is a grievous power. It is a burdensome power. It is a bondage power. It's what the devil does. 
And all the work of the devil that he does takes place in this world. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, he is called the God of this world who blinds the minds of those who can't believe. He's called the God of this world. In John chapter 14 and verse 30, John chapter 12, verse 31, in John chapter 16 and verse 11, I'm not trying to impress you, I'm just saying in these three places in the gospel of John, Jesus refers to the devil as the prince of the power of the air. It's the devil he's speaking about three times. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood as Christians, but we wrestle against principalities and powers, and listen to this, and the rulers of this world's darkness. The rulers of this world's darkness. Are you still in 1 John chapter 5? Look at verse 19. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth what? In wickedness. Evil. The whole world. What is it about the obvious defining of the devil as evil and wicked? What is it about that that people so like? Turn to John chapter 3 and verse 19. What is it? What is it that so easily controls us or... What kind of sin so easily besets us? What so easily keeps us out of heaven? What tug or allurement that's in this world, what captures a man's life or a young person or old person? What is it that dominates us and keeps us from going to heaven because we can't give it up? It's got to be something in this world that the devil has brought to you which becomes a snare to you, does it not? It becomes a snare. Oh, and we can't give it up. We can't give it up. Verse 19, John chapter 3 and verse 19. And this is the condemnation. This is what is condemned. And this is why it happens. That light is coming to the world and men loved what? They loved darkness better than light. Because their deeds are evil. Listen, because they have set themselves to do wrong and wicked and evil things that is defined by God, things which God does not author or bless, but because man is sensual by nature. Before he's born again, he's a sensual creature. He is controlled by his feelings, his emotions, and his senses, his urges, his desires, his wants. And he's so easily triggered by wanting things and the glamour of this world. He can have that for no money down and, and no payments. And, and he gets this. And this is how the devil just keeps people in a frenzy. And unless God opens your eyes and saves you and puts a new spirit within you, that thing will control you the rest of your life just like it did your ancestors. Now, we pass briefly through this world. We got a little time, just a couple times a week for God to teach us things like this. And we really have to give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard. Plus, we must redeem the time because these are critical times in God's kingdom. Because it's not like a lot of people are getting saved every year like they used to. But the growth, the seed that's been planted is coming to its flower. 
And the harvest time, folks, is just about here. And you want to pray that you're coming to fruition and not out here running around like a briar somewhere. But he said in John 3.19, people love darkness better than light. They love darkness better than light. Why? Because it's fun. It's ornery, nasty. It's self-fulfilling. I get to do my own thing. People like to go to a church that never defines sin because they're free to do whatever they please. They don't feel guilty. I think the devil is working his very, very best to remove from this earth the idea of guilt. If there's no guilt, there's no need for repentance because nobody's wrong. If there's no guilt, there's no sin. Like that lady on a talk show one night said, guilt is a wasted emotion. You know what she was talking about? A woman called in was concerned. She was having an affair with another man. I was feeling guilty about it, she said. Honey, just get over it. Guilt is a wasted emotion. It'll take care of itself. I don't know where she learned that, but that is the world. That's the world. I want to do my own thing. I want you to let me do my own thing in a church setting. I don't want you to disapprove of my wrong choices. I want you to tell me that nobody can always write, nobody's always, you know, perfect, and you just do the best that you can. If that's what you want to do, fine. If you want to live together and, and cohabitate, you know, nobody's perfect. You'll get over that. But just blah, 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 blah. Where do you get that kind of theology? Did you get it out of the Bible? You get it from the world because that's what they do on TV. That's what the movies do. You watch them enough, you'll start thinking that's okay. Then when somebody says something against it, you get offended. Just like you talk about the permanency of marriage. If you're permanently married, you don't mind. But if your marriage didn't work out well and you've been divorced or something and somebody says that's not right and so forth, oh, I thought Christmas used to be tough, but that's tough too. The only thing tougher than either one of those is a life of faith. People walk out on you on what faith is. But the world is in darkness. The world is ruled by the devil. In fact, in 1 John 2, 16, he says, For all that is in the world, not some of it. In verse 16, for all that is in the world. And notice what he mentioned. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Let me ask you this question in now that you're intelligent and you've been intelligentized. How's that for a new word? Where does lust come from? Say the world, because that's the right answer according to this verse. Where does the lust of the eyes come from? This urge to want and covet and have and get and obtain. It's not wrong to have things, but there's a kind of way that people get things that the world's way. It's not God's way. And it always winds up, and I wish I hadn't. Where does it come from? It comes from the world. Where does the pride of life come from? Look at me. Look how I did. Notice me. Admire me. Get my autograph. Talk to me. Move over from me. Where does that come from? Jesus said, a man who exalts himself should be abased. And a man who humbles himself should be exalted then why this proud, this cocky? You ever see a humble rock star? I hope you've never seen one. 
I left off with Elvis Presley. That was my generation. That was the end of it. And But today, they dress like creatures, and they look like creatures. You don't even know what's singing. Is it an animal? Is it a human? It's painted. It's spiked. It's goofy looking. It can't sing. It doesn't have a good voice, but it makes a lot of noise because it's got a good volume. And people think that's music. It's not music, but people think it is. They like that. It's formed in them. This is the way it is, and they like to walk around with the fingers all fixed up and pride of life. Look at me. I'm like you. Look at me, everybody. I'm dressed like y'all. Accept me? Okay, thank you. I'm going to talk like you all talk. I go to church, the preacher says we shouldn't do that. Oh, he just, oh, he turns me totally off, man, like I don't dig it. They still say stuff like that. They don't say dig it no more. Well, that's how I date myself. Why are you so hard to get along? Because of the world. Why are you such a difficult woman to live with? Because the world is motivating you. Or that man hard living? Because the world. It's the world. Why can't we get along? Because of the world. You can't tell me that if we love God, we won't get along with each other because the solution to every single problem that could exist in a church is love for God. What will we fight over if we loved each other as ourselves? The color that we're going to paint, whatever you got, paint it with that. What are we so concerned about what people think? We're not in here to make people think about what, how pretty, how well we are. We're in here to serve the Lord. We want to get along. We want to be at peace and harmony with each other. That's when the Spirit of God moves. Remember the day of Pentecost? They were all together in one place fighting over who gets to sit up front, and the fire fell. No, they were all together in one place in harmony. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, urges, sexual impurity and uncleanness, sexual thoughts, pornography, looking at the girls who shouldn't be dressed with her, but looking at them and thinking sexual thoughts. That's the world. Who doesn't do it? You might say it's the world. Turn to Ephesians 2 and hold on for a minute, okay? I'm going to describe you here. Or God's going to describe you. He described me. Put it that way. This was Tom Hamilton. Verse 2. In time past, all of y'all, you walk according to the course of what? Of this world. Notice, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In disobedient Christians who will not do what God said, is there a spirit in them working that? Did you have one? Is it gone? Ooh. Among whom also... We all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This is why we were rebellious. This is why we complain about the messages we hear. 
This is why we complain about not fair, too hard, too hot, too slow, too young, too old. This is why we complain about Christian truth. That's not fair. Because our mind, our minds have been conformed to this world. We think like the world. We lust like the world. We're not even bothered by it because so many people do it. We're part of a huge group. It's not fair for us to be singled out to live some kind of a celibate virgin life. Man. Virgin? You mean you'd be... Huh. Are you? Really? Why? That's the world. It is a nasty, filthy, spotting, corrupting influence on everybody who is in it. And your only hope of ever escaping it and the bondage of it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in a name, but in a life. And because while you were like that, Jesus saved you. He loves you that much. And he brought you out and requires one single thing from you, and that's to love him. He won't make you love him, but he'll give you a reason to. It covers a multitude of sins. It keeps you from doing a whole lot of things you shouldn't do. It'll make you turn the other cheek, look the other way, and not think a bad thought. Your desire to please God overrules your desire for any other physical thing in this world. Anything. That's why it's easy to be clean and pure in your life as a young person. All you need to do is love the Lord. And when you give yourself to the filth of this world, you are of the world. You're not overcoming. And while it's a tragedy, it is nevertheless true. And God wants us to change. People are held by the idols of this world. All the dreams and the pursuits of this world. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Study this word. Take time to spend with the Lord and find out what this means. And learn to put things together and see the bigger picture, not just a verse of Scripture in you, but get the whole bigger picture as what God is trying to show you in the Word. And let it unfold and let it begin to expand itself and begin to see that, oh, this is the life we're to live. And quit crying about all these decisions you have to make and all these things you got to give up. And all this, you know, my dream is to be the best bartender in Louisville. Well, they make a lot of money. Well, so do prostitutes. You've got to make a distinction, don't you? You seek first the kingdom of God and his right ways. And everything else he promised, everything else you need will be added to you. So that you will lack nothing in this life. It's your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. And you will find in his kingdom things that people don't know anything about, like peace and joy and contentment and a lack of the world's frenzy which drives them and drives them and stress and worry. There's an escape from all of that. But not within the world's realm and the pursuit of its idols and its dreams and, and its being great and being successful and being looked up to and making a million dollars. As the Bible said, all that does is result that love of money is the root of all evil. 
Many people have found themselves drowned in many a sorrow because of their pursuit in this life of money. They lost their family, lost their health, lost peace and joy. They've got a million dollars, and they're too sick and decrepit to do anything about it. And somebody else is going to get it. So what good is the world to us unless we crucify it? We're in it, but we're not of it. And yet, what can the world do to you without self? What can the world and all of its powers, allurement, what can it do without self? How do you know what self is? Self is called flesh in the Bible. Self is me. Would you briefly look in Romans 8, 6, and 7? Would you do that for me while I'm talking? Romans 8 and verse 6 and verse 7. Self is me. But it's more than just me. It describes the way me does things. It describes the way self and me functions. What motivates me? The kind of person I'm turning out to be. Remember it said over in Ephesians 2 a while ago, we were by nature the children of disobedience. Remember that? Well, nature is the kind of person we are apart from Christ. We're a natural man. We're led by our sensual faculties. We are geared by emotions. All these things identify self. Now, notice what God says. He uses this word self in Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. Now, Romans... 8 and verse 6 describes carnality. And he said, For to be carnally minded is death. To be carnally minded is death. What is death? Well, it means apart from God here. A carnally minded person is still alive in this world. He's goofy, he's fun, he's popular, or he's recluse. He's just a person, and he has a way of identifying his life by the way he lives. It's not like God wants him to live, so it's called flesh or carnality. The word carnal is our word for flesh, from which I got this word self. Verse 6 again, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because a carnal mind is enmity against God. Does your Bible say that? So as long as carnality rules in our mind, we cannot, no matter what we try to do, please God, because he said it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Can't be. Couldn't be. Now, go over to Galatians and chapter 5. Okay? Galatians 5, and look at verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit. Now, the word flesh here is the same as the word carnal and carnality in Romans 8, 6, and 7. Same word. So we're talking about flesh and self. This is what he's talking about. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other. These are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you want to do. You can't do that because the Spirit of God says, no, don't. Will you agree? All right. Verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are revealed or manifest, which are these. Now, he names 17 things here plus 
that will destroy your life. If you're going to maintain living like this, you will die and not make it to heaven. Here's what he says. Adultery. Fornication. Uncleanness. Lasciviousness. Party lifestyle. You know, those first four things he mentioned is what so many people are given over to do today. Sexual rowdiness, uncleanness, no hose barred. Recreational sex. No modesty, no purity of life, no respect for your body. Just do it. Idolatry. Witchcraft. The word witchcraft comes from the Greek word pharmakia, and it refers to here of drugs, medication. You draw your own conclusions. Hatred. Variants. Emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. Things that divide us and draw us apart. Envyings. Why so many robberies? Envyings. Murders, which would include abortions. Drunkenness. Revelings. And such like of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So what do you do with all of these things? At some time or another in your life, if you've lived long enough, at some point in your life, the urge for every one of these things has come to you. The temptation, the urge. It's the devil who's behind this, isn't he? And he brings all of this stuff to you. Tells you why you should. You can get by with who will ever catch you. And after all, it wasn't your fault. So you fight, you fuss, you have seditions, and you have party spirit and fooling around. You do drugs. You don't like you being pregnant. You get an abortion. It's just no respect for nothing. It's just a human being living as though he is a little God. He can do whatever she can do, whatever she wants to. It ain't nobody's business. You got a foul attitude and not even God wants you. If you insist on living that way, you're dead. Look at verse 24. See if that helps us. And they that are Christ, those who belong to Jesus, have done what? Crucified. So what do you do with the flesh? You put it on the cross. Matthew 10, 38, he said, Unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Or you're not worthy of me. What's a cross? It's a place of death. It isn't God that puts you on the cross. It's not the Spirit that puts you on the cross. The cross is given to you with a picture, with a message. It says, just as Jesus died for your sins on the cross, when he begins revealing you how dirty and messed up your life was and all the little things, impulses that controlled you and made you the kind of person you really are that he wants to change. This cross is a decision that you make in your life to not allow yourself to think Act and do like you used to because now you know that he has shown you something else. I won't do it. So here comes some racy-looking girl, scantily clad, down the street. 
you have to drive like with your eyes open. And some things you can't help but see. You weren't trying to see, but it just flashed out there in front. And you look and you think, my goodness. Now, if you keep looking, you start thinking. What do you think? My, you know, I like her shoes. Those are Nikes. Those are really good tennis shoes. Oh, that hair breast she's wearing, that, you know, I've always thought that was the best color for a hair bread I ever saw. That ain't what you're thinking. That ain't what you're thinking. I don't know what girls think now. If she thinks she is, maybe she thinks like, yeah, I don't know. But a young man who is loving the Lord, he won't look again. He'll tell himself, I wouldn't dignify the devil's attempt here with a casual glance. I'm not going to look. I don't want to run over the guy beside me, but I'm not going to look over that side of the street. That's what the cross is. Some people do this, but not everybody. But some people do. They just crucify those things. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to buy that. I can't afford it. I'm not going to buy that. I'm going to crucify my lust for things that... And I want to say something to that person or to your husband or your wife or your, your parents. And, and you know that what you're about to say isn't a prophetic utterance. You know it's not a gift of the Spirit. And you know that because your heart says, I, 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 don't do that. Don't look. Don't buy that. Don't go there. Don't hang around the people. Stay away from that. Don't wear that. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. It's temptation. And you get on the cross and you crucify the flesh. Because back to where I was, darkness, the spirit of this world, the prince of the power of the air has one goal, is to kill and to steal and to destroy, to conquer you, to hold you, to entertain you, and destroy you because God must judge that kind of a life. The devil knows that. So what do you do? Well, would you go to Matthew chapter 4? This is how Jesus handled darkness. And the devil took Jesus up to a high place, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, this is supernatural. Would you agree? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all these I will give you, and you'll have the pride of life. You'll be the most important looked-up-to person in all the world if you will just bow down to me. That's temptation. Hey, young folks, what if you had this? The guarantee of $30 million a year for the rest of your natural life if you will give up Jesus. No more church, no more reading the Bible, no more mention of his name. Eliminate Jesus Christ from your life. It'll give you $30 million tax-free because they get way too much of it. And they don't deserve that. But anyway, $30 million a year, tax-free, for the rest of your natural life. It's just every 10 years you get $300 million. A third of a billion dollars every 10 years. You can have the fanciest, finest. There's not a spot on this earth you can't go to. Not many officials you can't bribe. You can buy you a senator with that kind of money. You can buy you a couple of representatives, buy you some CEOs. 
You can have whatever you want. Would you do it? Thirty million tax-free dollars per year for the rest of your life. Just eliminate Jesus. Would you? Well, you'd be a fool if you did. There's one thing I guarantee you I've never seen and I don't think it's ever happened. Never been to a funeral home. Never looked inside of a casket in which the person laying in there was surrounded by $100 bills. Took all of his money and stuffed it under his head to get a big casket about that much deeper because it was lined with millions of dollars. And they buried the boy with all of his money. He said, I'm going to take it with me. No, when you die in this world, you die like a wino dies. You die like everybody. You're all even. At the point of death, you're done. That's the great judgment. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. You shall worship the Lord only. Get behind me, temptation. Get behind me, you nasty boy trying to take advantage of me. Get behind me, you nasty girl trying to show yourself. Get behind me, all you money grubbers in this world. Get behind me, all you lustful part. Get behind me. I love God more than I want that. And you change. Now, you change. You crucify the flesh. Now, let me ask you a few questions in closing as we come to the close the message before you go home. What are some evidences of the world and self-serving ways of this world? Let's begin with clothing. Oh, here we go. Well, I've been setting you up for not being able to say that now. Clothing. Is it possible that we could wear the wrong thing to church? Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Where in the Bible does it say that you're, there's church attire? Where in the New Testament is it required that you dress in a certain way? Where? Well, they're hidden. That's like the long hair, short hair issue. What exactly is long? Is it this much too long or that much too long? What is long? What's short? What do you mean by short? Well, it doesn't say. But one thing that God says is, Doth not nature itself teach you? Do you not naturally know some things? How many of you know that even heathens in this world, unsaved people in this world who are invited to church often say, I don't have anything to wear? Obviously, they haven't been to some church as much in the last five years. Why would people of my old fogey generation, why would folks say things, well, I don't have anything to wear? What are they saying? Are they not saying that there is a, a need to be respectful to God in some way with your body? It wouldn't be wrong if my wife came in here this morning to worship in a bathing suit, a two-piece bathing suit. She wouldn't have made it in here, but I mean. Now, you are laughing. You know why you're laughing? Because you inherently, instinctively know you just don't do that. Well, why not? Who said we can't? Who's to tell me how I should dress? Is a preacher allowed to tell you how you dress and how you can't dress? Do we have to inspect everybody coming in the room? No. But if somebody came in here in a, let's talk about this new style beach wear. That ain't much clothing. That's not much material. They ought to be cheap to buy. 
these new bathing suits you see on the advertising because there's not much to them. What if you came in here in that? Would you be embarrassed? Would you all think that's wrong? Okay, what if she had a one-piece bathing suit on? Okay, what if we had a 1930s bloomers bathing suit on that came down to the knees and up in here and is all... Would that be all right? Think. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with that? What if she came in here and all that kind of stuff and a brand new expensive pair of high heels? I mean, had a real nice pair of high, a $300 pair. Do you pay that much for high heels? Could you? Could you? Well, I'm way out of this. Not enough leather there to make a wallet out of me and make high heels. You got a $300 pair of high heel shoes that came from somewhere in New York and a really nice, expensive bathing suit. What's wrong with it? You have a reason why you think it's wrong? If you said, well, I don't think people should go to church like that. Well, at what point do you quit saying that? What if I came to church this morning with my swimming trunks on, period? (laughs) And all my muscles, huh? Would it be wrong? Would it be wrong? What if on the other side of the road out there is the ocean and we're a little beachfront church? Is it wrong? See, we're almost afraid the same thing about clothes today. Because at some point in your little evaluation of right and wrong, at some point you're going to say, bathing suit, no. Old bathing suit, no. How about a, a trench coat, overcoat, and a football helmet? No, you wouldn't wear that to church. Well, wait a minute. Why wouldn't you wear that to church? Is there something wrong with that? You would say, well, it's out of place. Out of place, why? Think. Reach some conclusions here. Why is it out of place? Well, because this is a meeting of Christians. And the God of Christians does better with our bodies than to look like goons. Or some of these other words. What if some of you young ladies came in here with a pair of shorts on? I mean, little short ones. I mean, like football cheerleader shorts. Professional football cheerleader shorts. You've never seen them? Praise the Lord. Little bitty skimpy things. And something you put around you that, you, that two people had to help you button it in the front. Is that wrong? With high heel shoes? Is that wrong to wear to church? You know it is. Nobody has to tell you it is. That's shameful. Why is it shameful? Because of not only the flesh you're trying to show and the admiration you obviously have for your body, but also for the desire for other people to notice your body and specific parts of your body. That's why girls have breast implants. Tell me that's not worldly. Somebody tell me that's not worldly. Why'd you do it? Well, I just don't look cute. They just identified the lady the other day I heard that was killed. uh, You know how they identified her? With the numbers on her breast implants. Who are you trying to kid if you think that's not worldly and something that God wouldn't want you to do? I don't care who's done it. It doesn't matter. 
Why do you think it's okay to show a lot of cleavage or have a low cut something that shows a lot of what you got? Why do you think that's not so wrong? Why would you wear clothes like that? Because you want somebody to look. It's called the lust of the eyes. Why do you wear tight jeans? Why do you wear jeans that are so tight that you can't even wear regular, normal pair of underwear because of the panty line? And you don't want somebody to think, you know, you, so you wear something that's a whole lot less than that. Don't tell me that's not worldly. I had a young man stand up one day. I know this is a little touchy. A young man that was here one time sitting in the back of the church had a visitor that morning, a young lady and some friends of hers. He got in after they had already got here. So they got up to close and sing. And he looked, this girl had a real thin dress, no slip. And um, it's just a lot of things you could see through it. Do you think that's worldly? Don't tell me it's comfortable. It's worldly. You wouldn't have put up with the discomfort of certain underwear because it makes the rest of you look pretty smooth. And that's worldly. And you're worldly when you dress like that. Any of you and all of you. Because you're trying to show your body. Now, this is not my last day here, I hope. But <laughs> I'm just trying to make a distinction between the world and God. What do Christians do? Modesty. Oh, so we have to come into your office and say, Am I modest? Well, first of all, your attitude's bad. And secondly, I'm not your boss. You got a daddy, don't you? What's your daddy say about your clothes? Does he say it's all right? If you came out of the house one morning, you're all of 13 growing years old, and we don't even know who you are because of the, all the stuff on your face, and your daddy said, get in there and wash your face. And you were so offended. Why'd you put all that stuff on in the first place? I told Bonnie one time, sorry, tell this. You don't mind? Okay. I was teasing my wife. I wasn't teasing her. I was just talking to her. She was one morning before church, and she was in the mirror, you know, doing all the stuff that ladies do to try to improve their looks. I said, why would a pretty woman like you put anything on like that? You don't need all that. You're a lovely woman. And she didn't miss me. She said, every old barn needs paint. <laughs> I asked her if she had any left over. Maybe <laughs> That wouldn't work either, though, would it? But, you know, I've said a lot of things about clothing through the years, and the truth of it is there is a way the world dresses, and you think it's okay to dress like that as a Christian, and it really isn't. They said, well, women should not wear what men wear. There's two things I can think of in Deuteronomy 24 about what a woman shouldn't wear. One was the... Articles of warfare, women didn't fight. They didn't hold those shields and have all that stuff on. And the other thing is called the tunic. You know, the men wore a tunic, and they came down to their knees and had a sash about it. And they often worked in the fields, and it was had big armholes in it. It was easy to do things that men do for a living. A woman shouldn't wear that. And they didn't. It's like wearing a head covering today. A lot of you women don't wear a head covering because whatever you want to call it. It's still in 1 Corinthians 11. You can deny it, and whatever you want to do, but it's still in there. 
A lot of women don't want to wear it because I just don't like. I, I look at myself in the mirror and I was putting a thing on practice in church, and you know, and I, and this just doesn't look good on me. And somebody came in, had one that came down all the way on her shoulder. Who I don't, I don't know about that. Well, that's because of the world. A dead person doesn't really care what the world thinks. You're hanging like this here, and you're dead, and the devil knocks on the door. And Jesus answers the door and says, what do you want? He said, I want Hamilton. He said, he's dead. What are you going to do with a dead man? What's the world going to do if I crucify my flesh? What's the world going to use to manifest itself if I crucify my flesh? What if I buy myself two mirrors? Because a lot of people don't own mirrors. I've seen too many people walk the streets that don't have a mirror. Well, if you look in the mirror and your conscience says, you know, that's a little too racy, that's too tight, or a guy, you got your pants down, you're trying to show us what kind of underwear you have. Is there something really exciting about a man's underwear? <laughs> walking around, have to hold your pants up all the time, walking around like this here. What if I came in here like that? <laughs> Had all my long hair spiked. Hey, what's happening, man? Hey, we're going to dig it today over in Galatians, all right? You'd probably get up and leave. You know what I'm doing? It's worldly. I've made it a point in my life because of who I am and what I do that when I stand here and preach, I want to always look clean and nice. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be the best there is. It's just that I want to be clean and nice. I want to be fully dressed, properly dressed, so that nobody can find a fault with it. Well, other than maybe the color of a tie you might wear. It's just the respect for God. Not only in this room, but out of this room. Others see you and they measure what God means to you by what you look like. Whether you're gaudy or whether you're well kept and you take care of yourself and, and you look nice and so forth. What if I came in here and took my tie off? A lot of men don't want to wear ties today because that's what you see a lot on the news. And people are, it's just the world, I think. What if I took my tie off, slung it aside, unbuttoned my shirt, pulled one side of it out? Would that be worldly? Are you all afraid to say yes? Of course it's worldly. Who am I trying to emulate? Some heathen out there that did it. I want to look like a heathen. These young boys today try to walk around acting stupid because stupid went before them and they're trying to live stupid. Why? Because it's the world. Oh. Tight clothing. Mm. What about tattoos? T-A-T-T-O-O-S. Tattoos. Is that worldly? Is anything wrong with it? Words the Bible say anything wrong with it. How about Leviticus? Aha. Don't ever ask a question without an answer, all right? Leviticus 19, verse 28. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead. Now, I don't know anybody that does that. I do know today that it's a, a new thing, a new thing beyond tattoos is to burn emblems in your skin like branding thing. And they're burning this stuff in. 
And when it heals, it's, it's a big scar, but it's in the shape of something you admire or a group you're with or a club you belong to or something you worship. This other part goes on to say, nor print any marks upon you. Does your Bible say that? Verse 28, nor print any marks upon you because I am the Lord. That's why you don't, because of me. Print any marks upon you. Why do people print marks upon them? Well, it's just like verse 26 and 27. There's a certain way that people who worshiped idols cut their beard, and it was a sign or a symbol that showed that they were attached to the way they cut their hair, that they were a part of, a, of another group or a worship of an idol or a system. Just like today when we got a big flyer in the mail this week about a Christian gathering. What was it called? Some kind of a, a live or something? Extreme, extreme. And this big old thing, extreme, showed all these singing groups that are going to be there. She's the one brought up. She said, look at how they look. I mean, look on their faces. I don't want to hear you sing. What are you going to sing? I don't know what they're going to sing. But something doesn't connect with my spirit. Well, you're just narrow. I am narrow. And I'm getting more narrow. Because I think God's judgments are real narrow. He said only a few are going to make it and many are going to try and not be able to make it. I don't want that to happen to anybody here. If you have to go home and the windows are all raised in your house and clothes are flying out every window to make it in the kingdom, so be it. I just don't want to see the devil make a mockery of your life sitting in the right place all these years and when it's over, you missed it. Tattoos on your flesh often identify you with something else, with somebody else. Sometimes it's an idol. Sometimes it's a worship of something. Have you ever seen as many tattoos on people? Well, I haven't. I grew up a long time ago, and not many people had. You know, a sailor might go out the ocean and get a tattoo on his arm somewhere. Or the worst thing I ever heard, I was printing your current girlfriend's name on your arm and then later on married, you know, you had Sally and then you married Sue and you had to get Sally off of there. But today, you know, one of the popular preachers here a year or so ago in, in Florida was, you know, a guy preaching his T-shirt and his flip-flops and yelled and hollered and his just tattoos all over him. Earrings here, down through here. What makes you think that this is something that God would approve of? Now, if you got your tattoos before you came to the Lord, he knows that. But I'm talking about going out and getting the butterfly or the... It's harder to find people today that don't have tattoos than ones that do. Jesus doesn't want his name tattooed on your flesh. He wants it on your heart. All I'm saying is, in closing, the world has a system, has a way that snares its design is to draw you in and make you like it and then later on condemn you for doing it. And your life becomes miserable. You mess up all the time. Man, I don't know why I did I don't know why I did And the devil keeps luring you in and you do it and then he condemns you. The Bible says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Metamorphosis. Be changed into another image. Let God take you, whatever you've got, whatever you can give him, as ornery as it was, as bad as it was, give it to God. 
and let God change you. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to minister to all of us here today, myself, these that are before me, those who listen in other places, wherever they are in this world, and believe nothing that I've said because I said it, but to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. May we have the courage that not many have today, the courage to live this life. Reveal your love to us, O Lord. Compel us. Draw us near. Teach us your way. Make us the kind of people you want. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? what I to you.